Hello and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental journalism brought to you by the investigative team of reporters at ENDS Report. I'm James Ajipong Parsons. In this episode, we'll be finding out why battles over the rule bill have only just begun, how Scotland's deposit return scheme and glass bottles have sparked fierce sovereignty rows, and learn how the livers of wild boar could help in the fight against toxic forever chemicals. For our deep dive section, we'll be looking at the greenest cities in England, analysed by ENDS Report with its award-winning editor, Jamie Carpenter. To help me wallow in the green news of environmental policy this week, I'm joined by the ENDS Report's own news editor, Pippa Neal, and reporter, Shosha Aidy. First up is the political fight over the rule bill, as the two houses of parliament battle out amendments to the bill aimed at preserving, reforming and revoking EU laws which includes a lot of environmental legislation. Uh, Pippa, I thought the fight over rule was done and dusted. That's, is that true? No, sadly not, although I think we all probably wish it was. Um, so last week, the rule bill entered its so-called ping-pong stage, where the House of Lords and the House of Commons attempt to thrash out the final shape of the legislation. Um, and during this session in the House of Commons, MPs rejected a series of House of Lords amendments to the bill. So it was quite an interesting, interesting session. So the House of Lords wanted to do what exactly with their amendments? So earlier this month, the Lords secured a series of changes to the bill, which we did actually talk about on episode 41 of the Eco Chamber, if you want to listen back. <laughs> so firstly, they did vote to support the government's intention to scrap the sunset clause, which we talked about in detail in episode 41, um, and instead replace it with a schedule detailing the legislation that will be axed by the end of the year. Um, and you know, what was the sunset clause very briefly? So the sunset clause was um, plans for all EU retained EU law to kind of drop off a cliff edge at the end of the year. And instead, the government has published an amendment with just 600 laws that they intend to scrap by the end of the year. Um, and I thought it was quite there was quite an interesting and perhaps amusing comment from Jacob Rees-Mogg during this session, um, who was one of the architects of the retained EU law bill. Um, and he said that the habitats regulations, which isn't on this list of laws that will be scrapped, are another example of rules that stop us doing things that are environmentally friendly and would benefit the environment because there may be some habitat nearby. So I'm not sure what listeners think of that, but maybe they would disagree. I love the point where he starts talking about common seals. So that the, the, he's had some problem with common seals and saying all well, the names in the common and in fact, grey they're less common than grey seals and protecting under UK law, not EU law, which... Mm. I mean, we're just, it's just choice of words. Yeah, be funny, <laughs> definitely. Parliamentarians. However, so that's the amendment that they did accept, MPs did accept, but they voted to remove Amendment 15, which would have created a new clause to place several conditions relating to environmental protections and food standards, which UK ministers or devolved authorities must meet when intending to use powers to amend or revoke legislation. So it basically would have kind of put some environmental protections in place before kind of just scrapping a piece of retained EU law. Um, so that was that was kind of vote that was removed. Um, and why would the government what's the government said in its defense? Speaking about Amendment 15, um, Michael Tomlinson, who's the Solicitor General, he said it was unnecessary given that ministers have made it clear repeatedly that they will not lower environmental protections or standards, but that kind of doesn't really do much to reassure kind of campaigners. We take their word for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and 
Amendment 42 was also rejected by MPs, so this sought to apply new scrutiny procedures, including the consideration by a joint committee of both Houses of Parliament on any future changes to EU rules. So it just kind of was attempting to add a new level of scrutiny to any kind of plans to revoke legislation, but this was also rejected. Um, And then MPs also voted to reject Amendment 6, which was aimed at protecting EU case law decisions. Um, So this would have ensured that many of the rights secured by EU case law cannot be reversed without Parliament's say-so. Okay, and where does the bill go from here then? So the bill returns to the House of Lords next week, which is the 6th of June. So yeah, we'll be covering that, I'm sure, probably on the next podcast. Now on to a war of sovereignty, after the Scottish First Minister accused the UK government of trying to undermine devolution with glass bottles. So this is the story about the War of Recyclers and Scotland's nascent deposit return scheme, which, Pippa, correct me if I'm wrong, this is a scheme where I get charged an extra fee for buying my can or drink at the shop, um, but I'll get that fee back once I return that can or bottle to a collection point to be recycled. Yeah, that's right. Now, how is a recycling scheme like DRS blown up over a war of sovereignty? Yeah, it is a very dramatic story for what is, in theory, an incredibly simple scheme and one that has been rolled out in multiple countries across the world. So it's not it's not new or kind of revolutionary. Um, but basically, after months of kind of wrangling over the scheme at 9.45pm on Saturday night, which is quite, you know, an interesting time, especially given the bank holiday, the UK government confirmed that the Scottish deposit return scheme will be allowed to go ahead after a request from Scotland for an exclusion under the Internal Market Act was approved. So the Internal Market Act, which is kind of born out of Brexit, seeks to prevent trade barriers between the UK nations and kind of the Scottish government can apply for an exclusion for a specific scheme like the deposit return scheme. Um, And in this long-awaited policy statement on the exemption, while the UK government said it approved the scheme, it said that its temporary exclusion will cover plastic, aluminium and steel cans only, meaning glass will be excluded. And why are glass bottles such a big deal then for the UK government? So England's deposit return scheme, which isn't set to launch until October 2025, which is later than Scotland's scheme, will not include glass. And in this policy document, the UK government said that this type of permanent divergence would be a very significant step for businesses and consumers and said there is, in quotes, insufficient justification for such an approach. Um, They also said that including glass would add cost and complexity to the scheme, in particular to the hospitality and retail sectors, as well as adding consumer inconvenience. So what's the Scottish First Minister's take on all this? So he's been pretty angry about it um, and speaking on Twitter, Hamza Youssef accused the government of not just trying to scupper the DRS but also of trying to undermine devolution. Um, And he said that excluding glass would mean that 600 million bottles that would have been captured by the scheme would not be collected and he also warned that the millions of pounds of investment that's already been spent by the industry would be kind of completely wasted. Um, But his anger actually went a bit further than just a criticism of, you know, the government's, the UK government's approach to the scheme itself. But he also said, you know, that that there's been other examples of a systematic attempt from the UK government to erode devolution and said that only with independence will the people of Scotland get true self-government. It's like a brave heart freedom quote going off in my head right (laughs) now. It was very dramatic for, yeah, as I say, something that should be pretty simple just to recycle more plastic and glass bottles, something that 
you know, we all know is a good thing to do. Do we know what happens next? So we don't really know yet, but Yusuf has said that he didn't want to go ahead with a scheme that would exclude glass, but said he would look at the various options. So I think with this one, we just have to wait and see. I'm not exactly sure what kind of powers now that the UK government have said, you know, have issued this exemption. I'm not exactly sure what powers Scotland has. Um, But the Scottish Greens have launched a petition urging the Prime Minister to keep glass in the scheme. So I guess we have to watch this space and see kind of what the reaction is. Onto the wonderful world of PFAS and an unlikely bedfellow with wild boars. Shosha, can you first of all just remind me what PFAS is? Yes. Um, PFAS, or per- and polyfluorinated alkyl substances, are quite a big um, group or umbrella group, I suppose, of around 10,000 man-made chemicals. They're used in quite a wide range of consumer products as they have desirable qualities such as being water and oil repellent um, and have a tolerance to high temperatures. But these qualities that make them so useful to us also are the reason they cause problems in the environment because they're slow to break down and um, hence the term forever chemicals. And they they bioaccumulate up the food chain, the toxins, is that right? Yes, um, because they're so persistent, um, it's these strong carbon fluorine bonds. It means that when they don't break down, they can then, yes, um, pile up as animals eat them and then the animals eat the other animals, you know. And in that way, you know, we don't, we haven't got that much information actually on what the adverse effects are um, in humans. Um, but we know in animals, for example, some chemicals have been shown to cause cancer, perhaps, um, and other harmful diseases. So enter wild boars. How do wild boar and PFAS have a relationship here? It feels quite random, doesn't it? Um, perhaps because in England, we're not used to seeing wild boars wandering around. But the researchers, um, they're from Germany and they chose this animal because it's got quite an omnivorous diet, um, a wide foraging range, and it occupies a lot of regions there. So I think if you asked someone from Germany that same question, they'd probably be like, of course, wild boar. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, the interesting part about this research is they found that um, the the livers of the wild boar could be studied to kind of map um, the different kinds of PFAS contamination in the soil in presumed hotspots um, or act as a bioindicator. Um, in short, they did find that it was a promising method um, that could be replicated. And that's quite significant as it's quite difficult to prove whether an area is a PFAS hotspot or not, because a lot of evidence is required. So can you just take me through how a wild boar liver can help me find out about PFAS? How do they go about doing that research? Yes, the liver, interestingly, is really well suited to the study because PFAS bind to proteins rather than fatty tissue, which is unlike a lot of other environmental pollutants like heavy metals. Um, And also the liver is well supplied with blood. So they looked at the samples from around 50 animals from different areas impacted by different kinds of pollution. Um, One was in the Baden region of Germany, where PFAS contaminated paper sludge used to be spread on fields as like a recycled compost. Another was an industrial area in southern Germany. And the third was an area in the northeast of Germany, which the researchers included as kind of a control because only background contamination was expected to be present there. 
The researchers then tested for 66 different kinds of PFAS, um, carrying out a test which is quite technical called the top assay, which turns some of the chemicals present into um, a subgroup called PFAAs, um, a type of acid, which can identify emerging short-chain substances that wouldn't be picked up in the other tests. So it doesn't show the concentration of these, it just shows that they're present. Just to give a highlight of this method, um, in one of the areas that is impacted by industrial emissions, they found a short-chain PFAS called DONA, which is often used as a substitute for one of the regulated PFAS chemicals, PFOA, but DONA is not subject to regulations, despite being in similar in structure to another chemical which is listed as a substance of high concern. So finding this chemical is significant because it means that you then know that the wars are being exposed to this, they're actually taking it up into their bodies, and now we can wonder what the effect of this chemical is. So how can tracking these bores and, and testing their, to their livers help in the fight against PFAS? So the way that the study was successful in proving wild boars can be a bioindicator um, for contaminants in soil means that not only can we perhaps use animal samples as a promising method for identifying emerging substitutes, such as these DONAs, um, that might actually be quite harmful, but we don't know yet, but also you can prove that these areas are contamination hotspots. And I think the researchers expressed hope that the methods could go on to support regulatory work and prompt further study. So that would be great. And going back to Germany more specifically, they mentioned there's a lot of undiscovered local contamination because there's a considerable analytical effort involved in using soil samples. So using these bore can locate and actually narrow down a much more straightforward way where these contamination hotspots are. So it'd be great to see something like this replicated um, in the UK, I think. I'm not sure what animal they would use. Um but yeah, if anyone's listening to this podcast and might be able to do that, that would be very interesting. And if you'd like to hear more about any of the big green news stories we've been talking about this week, please head over to our website, endsreport.com. Now on to our deep dive section, where we're talking big cities and clean streets. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know that Ends Report has launched a new Green Cities Index an in-depth analysis of environmental data of England's 55 largest urban centres. You'll also know that Oxford ranked first in the tracker, but why? To help me discuss the findings of N's Green Cities Index, I'm joined by editor Jamie Carpenter. Jamie, let me ask you first then, how does the index work and why did Oxford do so well? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and um, I think there's there's kind of quite a few bits to that. So... Um, Essentially, what the index is, is it's a ranking of the 55 large towns and cities in England. Um, but how we got to that point is quite a complicated and, and um, lengthy process. So um, I, I guess the, first, the, the starting point is um, one of the questions we had to resolve is what, what actually is a city? Um, it sounds like a really basic question, but actually there's lots of different ways to define a city. Is it not with a cathedral and a spire? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, well, that's one way of doing it, but unfortunately there's not really much data associated with that that kind of way of defining them. So um, so we, we, we ended up using a definition, which is um, <clears throat> a definition which is called primary urban area, which um, is used by Centre for Cities, who are a, a kind of a, an urban think tank, um, 
And basically what that is, is that that's a, it's a group of local authorities normally around around a city that kind of matches the, the built-up area. Um, and there are 55 of those in England. Um, so most of the cities, some are large towns. So some people might say, well, that's not a city, um, which is kind of strictly true, but it's a kind of a, a, a recognised definition of, of an urban area. So that's the one we've gone with. Um, so that was one question we had to resolve. Then another one which is more complicated than that is actually how how do you define what a green city is um and there, there are kind of two two elements i guess to that so one of them is we wanted to find relevant data sets that would help us kind of judge that so so we we um we in the end we we used 35 different data sets across um, five overarching categories. So they, they were things like public realm, which is about green spaces generally, um, green behaviour, which is is about, um, as, as you'd expect, kind of how how eco-friendly or otherwise people are. So how what, what an area's recycling rate might be like or whether people travel to work by car or whether they use public transport or walk, those kind of things. Um, we, we also had categories that were related to air quality, um, water quality and climate, um, and, w- and once we'd amassed all that data, then the next step was to um, essentially create it, create an index out of it. So, so to do that, we we used the the help of a a data scientist, and as part of that process, we needed to decide what weightings to give the various categories, and what we what we decided to do was to give the the public realm category the, the kind of green space related one and the green behavior category the, the the greatest weights because we we felt that those those kind of best represented what what a green city is so we like the green spaces and we like people who recycle yeah essentially i mean it, it's it's a difficult thing and it's kind of quite subjective because quite legitimately you you could argue well what why why don't you Air quality is really important. It is really important that that could be. You you should be giving more weight to that, um, and and that that's that's a completely arguable point. And um, I mean, I've I've noticed though, for example, uh, on our metric that Portsmouth, where I'm from, ranks towards the bottom based on our metrics. I also know that they have very poor air quality, so yeah. it's not like these things are completely separate no no i mean we're not we're not ignoring those categories it's just that they, they they're kind of weighted less than the the uh the public realm category and the and the green behaviors one so um so yeah so i mean it's it's difficult and there, there may be some cities that feel unfairly treated just as much as oxford feels very pleased that they're the top so um i bet cambridge is absolutely livid right now with us yeah i think i think to uh to, to finish third with oxford at the top is probably um a bit too much to bear for them, and and, and why did Cambridge do so well then? Uh, yeah, it's third is third is good. You got bronze, bronze. Yeah, I mean, um... <laughs> they they do. I think they did well on their green behaviour, right? Which is which is to do with things like commuting, walking, or cycling. Walking, walking, walking is back. If you listen to last week, it's walking, <laughs> walking or cycling for any purpose for at least five times a week. So Cambridge is really good. They're the fit ones of our country. They're the, they're the fit. They're, they're, yeah, they're. they're they're good at that. I think. I think it's in, one one of the interesting things about this year's index was that 
the or at least I think it's interesting. The the the, the census came out last year, so there's a whole load of um, environmental data um, or, or data that's relevant to this. And census is obviously once every ten years, so so we um, we, we had a, a lot of new data to play with around things like um, how how people travel to work um, and some interesting stuff also around how people heat their homes. Um, there's a slight caveat with the um, data around commuting because 2021 was obviously during a pandemic. So right. it's um, it may it may not be kind of entirely representative, but to me it kind of felt real that, that the places like Oxford and Cambridge are are kind of very good at active active travel and um, are, are quite they feel quite green in how they how their residents go about commuting to work. And why do you think a tool like the Green Cities Index matters? Why is it useful? Well, well, the, 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 there's 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 a kind of few a few things I'd say to that. I think what one one of them is that it's it's quite a practical resource for our subscribers. So the kind of news the news element is the ranking, but actually sitting behind that there are all those data sets. And as part of what we've done, we've tried to make those those data sets as accessible as possible to our readers. So if you if you look, for example, you go to each city on the index has their own their own page, and within that page, you can explore maps that that kind of show a lot of these data sets. So the commuting data, you can look at um, tree canopy cover, you you can look at all sorts of stuff, polluted roads, those kind of things. So you can you can explore the data for your city, but also we we've then included the data for each of those cities in, in, in a table and showed how they how they compare to their peers. So so there's this kind of as a kind of practical tool, I think it's useful, and I think and we all know that some of this environmental data, although it's public data, um, it's not always very accessible. So we're kind of trying to make that make make that more readily and easily available to our subscribers in a way that they can they can engage with it in a, in a useful way. So I think that that's that's one one thing we try to do with it. the The other thing is more of a is a slightly different point, which I think is cities are becoming more and more important as a way that people live. Um, now urbanization is continuing there i think it's accepted that in in, ter- in terms of kind of dealing with the climate crisis actually kind of being in urban areas is an important thing and they they have the most potential to to kind of be climate resilient places so so it's important from that respect but also i think one of the one of the interesting things that that kind of comes through from our data and th- th- this is not necessarily a new thing but it's very very clear that People living in different urban areas have very, very different experiences from these kind of different environmental indicators. So you'll see very, very wide disparities between places. And I think when when you, uh, I mean, specifically about green spaces, I think that there's there's kind of more and more evidence and acknowledgement that that green spaces are really kind of important for people's well being. Um, but there is quite strong correlation between the the amount of green space and and levels of deprivation um so so it is it is kind of quite an important issue and i think i think the sort of my my own view is that we 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 kind of need more public funding to address those things so so if 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 we, there was more attention and more investment trying to trying to make our cities greener it would it would actually be good for people's well-being but also it would help create more climate resilient cities which we're going to need as, as climate change kind of gets worse over the coming years and if you want to check out your city on the index head over to nsupport.com and get typing that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the eco chamber 
Thank you to Pippa Neal, Shosha Aidy, and Jamie Carpenter, who've taught me that the rule of law is still being debated when it comes to the rule bill, that Scottish independence is just 600 million glass bottles away, that wild boars could help us gorge and wallow our way out of the PFAS crisis, and that Oxford is not only the brainiest, but also the greenest city of England. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, including that amazing Green City Index that ENDS Report has put together, please head over to our website, endsreport.com. For your thoughts, opinions and views, please email us on ecochamber at haymarket.com. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the subscribers of ENDS who make the real investigative journalism happen. So why not consider taking out a readership today? In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.